Our story in Samuel this morning takes us right to the heart of everything that is real and most important. The happenings at this brook baser provide a model for generosity of heart, generosity that includes things and assets, but also includes things like forgiveness, of not comparing your best with someone else's worst. Now you just think how much of that marks human interaction. The almost constant comparing of our best with someone else's worst, especially if we want something. And we see how this generosity of heart happens within real life, that it's not sophisticated theology or philosophy. It's not marked by great subtlety. It's actually marked by great practicality. So you know the story. David and his men are off fighting. The families and goods are left unprotected in Ziklag, unprotected in the sense that there's not fighting people there. Their enemies capture the people, they loot the place, they demolish it. David's men are really frustrated and angry with him over his decision, angry over the outcome, plotting to kill him. And we learn here, at least, that tragedy brings out the best or worst in us. And in David's men, it brought out the worst. All the mean-spirited men who had marched with David said, if they didn't help in the rescue, they don't get to any of the plunder. Each man can have his wife and children, but that's it, just take them and go. And these men had completely forgotten that all that David had done to strengthen them, not just materially, but in providing brave leadership that had resulted in their security for many years. And most importantly, David, as a pastor, shepherd type, cultivating in them a life of God. And so this disaster didn't just wipe out their physical and relational lives, it drastically set back the progress that they were making spiritually. And even the victory that they just experienced had come through David's prayer in seeking God's will and in the generosity to that Egyptian man. Without that generosity, this story doesn't unfold the way it did. These men had forgotten that everything they just experienced was sheer grace. And thus, it wasn't fairness that was called for here, but a gracious generosity. But the same set of circumstances bring out the best in David. I mean, David saw what everybody else saw. He wasn't blind. He saw the rubble. He saw the weakness of the people who couldn't go on. But he also looked within. He looked to God. And he settled and grounded himself in an unseen reality. can say that David had a different orientation, a different emphasis, a different character. That he was working out of a different set of values. He prayed and worshipped and sought spiritual advice. And I think we can see in this kind of a cultivation of virtue so that David had essentially here a different ethical posture, marked by things like David was alive to God, while others were alive to and animated by callous rage. And this is why David says, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. It's the Lord who's protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party. That Egyptian man was a gift from God. And without that, we wouldn't be where we are now with all of our wives and children back and everything that they had plundered. What David is saying is something like this, having experienced so much goodness and grace from God, he then was passing it along to the Egyptian and to the 200 weaker people who had stayed behind and guarded the supplies. And here, for those of you who are uh, at Holy Trinity most of the time, I just want you to hear in this that this is classic journey inward and journey outward. Just think of it almost like pedals on a bike or something. This is the cultivation of inner virtue for the sake of others. 
This is classic to I am generating within myself from God a generosity that then just naturally expresses itself to others in acts of righteousness and justice, healing and generosity. So as I thought, sat with this text this week, I, I tried to think, what are, what are the formal formational insights for us? You know, we're, we're studying here David as an example of spiritual formation over a lifetime. And so I wondered, what are the, what are the lessons or insights that are in this story for us in terms of our own formation into Christ-likeness? So I thought of a few. The first one is this, that our world is full of anger and often because of the things that were taken from us. And this causes us to feel bitterness and resentment and to have, as David's men then did, the desire to get even. And this means that because most people act out of anger, that our world is full of hurts and disappointments. So now again, I want you to think carefully with me here about your own formation into Christ-likeness and try to follow this logic with me. You're getting in a friend's car and he or she accidentally slams your fingers into the car door. Now, for a number of days or weeks, maybe, you're going to be really acutely aware of your left hand, right? I mean, as it throbs and turns shades of blue and purple and red, for a very long time, that hurt is going to dominate your observation about life. Got it? Now think of the many inward hurts you carry around within you and how they dominate human interactivity. For most people, unless people are pursuing healing in Christ, the dominant thing from which they act are hurts and disappointments. And then this, of course, overflows into all kinds of other things, a, a kind of a generalized fear of life, maybe a sense of desperation, maybe, like what I read into David's men, a kind of self-obsession begins to dominate our hearts and minds and emotions. I just can't see or feel anything other than, dang, my hand hurts. And though we are not conscious of it, though many of us wouldn't be able to articulate it, even name them, most people, unprocessed hurts and disappointments just sort of stack up in their heart and soul like playing cards. They just stack up. Now I want you to hear the genius of Jesus. That is the self to which you are called to die to. When Jesus says, take up your cross, crucify yourself, die to yourself, he's not saying become a nobody and nothing a doormat. He's not saying that your essential self doesn't matter. No, God created you and called it good, very good. God is staggered by your goodness. That's not the self that you're called to die to. The self that we're called to die to is that broken self that has its attachments and therefore its animation towards actions, attitudes, and words, it has like a, like a trampoline from which action and attitudes come. It's that broken self that we're invited to die to. I would say don't even hear it as a command, like a, you know, like roll over, you know, like you do to a dog. Don't, don't think of it like that, like roll over. Think of it as an invitation that life would be better. Your life would be better. Human life would be, be better. If our knee-jerk reactions to life weren't, this isn't fair. Now here I want you to just think with me for a moment. What if generosity sits right at the heart of everything that's real about the whole cosmos? So I would say this, that lying behind the whole material world, whether it's what we call blank space in the cosmos, 
or material stuff that we can measure with our senses. Lying behind all that is the trinity of beings for whom the word fairness would never cross their minds. See, if I wonder whether or not you would be fair to me, undergirding that is the suspicion that you might not. Now, I want you to just imagine the father thinking that of the son. And I want you to see how impossible that is. That the father who loves the son and cherishes the son and said in public on at least two major occasions, this is my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. And the son saying of the father, the father's amazing and spectacular and I only do what I hear and see my father saying and doing. And Jesus says the spirit is spectacular and that his role on the earth is unspeakably good and the spirit drives people to Jesus. Just imagine that trinity of being operating out of fairness, right? It's ludicrous. It's unthinkable. But now... Think about the grounds of everything real being marked by generosity. A generosity of love and trust that exists in the Trinity. And out of that generosity, the Father says, let there be light. And let there be human beings. Now catch this. So out of his own generosity of being, he breathes into his creation, his own spirit. His own generosity of being is what was meant to mark humankind. But because of these brokennesses and hurts and disappointments, that they seem like more on the surface of our emotions and our minds and our hearts and wills. They, they seem to be the trampoline that animates so much of human interaction. This is why we have to cultivate generosity. It doesn't come natural to most people. What comes natural to most people is a fear of lack, a fear that if I don't care for myself, no one else will. And I just want you to see how that's deeply rooted in your sense of the Father. That's deeply rooted in your sense of what is really real. And this, I think, is a, an extraordinarily right at the core kind of lesson. A lesson doesn't seem to be a strong enough word. I can't think of a better one. For our own formation, that it's just not going to get very far. If you don't see that the kind of the bubble in which you are pursuing discipleship to Jesus is marked fundamentally by generosity of spirit. And this, I think, is one reason why Jesus said, the kingdom of God is unto little children. Unless a little child, like up to a toddler or something, unless a child is severely abused in some horrible way, they never doubt that they're cared for. You would be shocked to find a two-and-a-half-year-old hiding bacon under her bed. Why are you doing that, honey? Well, what if mom and dad don't feed me tomorrow? Now, can you feel how unthinkable that is? And this is why Jesus says the kingdom of God is unto little children. You can, you can pursue formation in Christ, not out of fairness, not out of judgment, not out of bad dog roll over, but you can pursue your formation in this huge bubble of generosity so that if, even if you're Peter and you deny Jesus three times, even if you're David and you sleep with Bathsheba and arrange for Uriah to be killed, it's still like I always say, I'll see you on the beach. Like that stuff doesn't happen outside of this bubble of generosity, Peter or David. You know, it's that same David who came to see that the Lord is my shepherd. I do not have to live in the broken tyranny of my disordered desires, the Lord is my shepherd. I do not have to live in want. 
Well, we might playfully say, well, David, you could have figured that out a little bit earlier with Bathsheba, right? Or, well, David, you might have figured that out a little bit, you know, before you arranged for Uriah to be killed. But he doesn't. But it's still okay. Those things don't happen outside of the bubble of God's essential generosity. The God who lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And who calls us to have childlike attitudes towards that. Such that our formation could actually become a kind of sense of joy. Now, I don't know, maybe you're a musician, maybe you're an artist. You know, I was an athlete, so I relate to it the way an athlete does. And that is, when I was shown how to do something better, I delighted in that. Now, now come on, catch this. But to be shown how to do something better, whether it was to hit a top hand or top, you know, a, a top spin forehand in tennis or to hit a little dink shot in racquetball or to hit a baseball or whatever it is I was doing, to be shown how to do something better brought great delight to me. But what does that imply? To be shown how to do something better implies what? You were doing it less than good. And what happens to many of you is you get stuck in the judgmentalness of I'm not doing it right. And because others constantly judge you and because you constantly judge yourself, you project that on God. And you forget that no, your formation happens in this giant bubble of generosity. And you can learn how to hit a top spin forehand like a 10-year-old does. 10-year-old girl who hits it right for the first time and the ball dives over the net and skips away before her opponent can get it. That is a moment of great joy. And all the times that your racket was at a wrong angle or your feet position was off or your hips are in the wrong position, that all goes out the window under the joy of that ball just did what I wanted it to do. This is why generosity is so important and why cultivating it in us as a basic aspect of our formation is so important because then it allows us to have friendships and families and church communities in which we then radiate that kind of generosity to each other. And it foments then a kind of childlike joy in seeking Christ. So it's that self that doesn't live in that. That's the self that we're called to lose. And we're called to lose it, not so much because that self is bad, may or may not be, that's just not the main reason. We're called to lose that life because our real life is in God. And that if we seek that, we will live and be human as God intended. Now, this is why we read Matthew 25 with these readings, is to show that at some point, God is really focused on this. So that the separation of sheep and goats, the judgment, you might say, is rooted in how we've treated or cared for others. And you can see that without cultivating generosity, we'll never do that. Versus the common human idea, and that is that it's self-interest that should drive human activity and that should determine our attitudes and actions. And so Jesus is simply talking here about the nature of reality again, of God and his kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, no, what's fundamental to God is his kingdom is, is to receive and to give generosity. And those who do so are living in alignment with God and his kingdom. Here, as analogy, as a metaphor, sheep. Those who aren't, goats. So generosity is, first of all, about the very nature of God. Only then about the state of my soul, and only then can it be for others. So generosity is the condition that determines what we do with whatever is in our bank or our cupboard or our closet. I think I should read that again. Generosity is the condition of our heart 
that then determines what we do with whatever's in our bank or our cupboard or our closet. So not surprisingly, it's a heart issue. So you may remember that passage in Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. See, that's a heart that can foment generosity because it's not rooted in a sense in, in a life of lack. It's rooted in this bubble of generosity. Or the psalm we read this morning. This is a psalm of David. This is his lived experience, at least at Ziklag, if, at least including Ziklag and other things, where David celebrates your faithfulness, Lord, is to the skies. This bubble is unspeakably big. And you give peace and generosity to both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So last we might ask ourselves, so why aren't we really generous? We care, but I think mostly when we're not generous, we're not generous because we're afraid we don't have enough for ourselves. And I get it. That's totally normal. But here's what you need to know. Ready? God is never in that position. He is never in the position of lack. He is omnipotent. And this is why these little bits of theology were never meant to be little bits of theology. Before omnipotence showed up in a Bible dictionary or in a systematic theology, it was a lived experience. Did you catch that? Omnipotence as a term in a theological encyclopedia or dictionary or systematic theology, it only sits on the page of some systematic theology because it was first a lived experience. And people tried to then describe their lived experience in this bubble that's not just marked by generosity, but by the loving capacity to pull that generosity off with God's people. So God never has a shortage of anything. He is by nature overflowing sufficiency. So one way to think of Jesus is to think of the life of Jesus kind of publicly saying this, hey, forget everything you think you know about God. Just forget it. For now, just like for the sake of discussion, can you hear Jesus saying, just forget everything you think you know about God. And I'm going to reveal to you what he's really like. And then, bam, he turns water into wine. Let me show you the generosity of my father. He feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000, and there's baskets left over. Now, what do you suppose that's meant to communicate? Come on, you're all really smart people. Like provision, generosity, more than enough, never lack. And then he just says, straightforward proposition, John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He just says it straight out. And so what this says to us is that those of us who are learning to live our life in Christ and in the kingdom of God, that means we can come to the place where we're never in the position of being dominated by the feeling of lack. Now, I try to picture this if you can. I'm almost done. Just use your imagination to try to picture this. Paul in prison in Ephesus. So try to picture an ancient prison best you can. And then hear these words that he writes from prison. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. See, that, that's not like a generosity of being that's rooted in, in circumstances. That's a generosity of being that begins in his heart so that he's able to actually be content even in prison. Or here, Peter. Remember, we, we, spent, we spent the first five or six weeks of ordinary time doing Peter and his formation over his life. Right, so now think of all the boneheaded things Peter said and did, right? And then you come to 1 Peter 
And here Peter writing, cast your cares upon God, for he cares for you. Now again, we might jokingly say, well, Peter, you might have figured that out in the courtyard. Or Peter, you might have figured that out before you tried to hack off the soldier's head in the garden. But these men are pursuing formation as we are. But both David and Peter and, we could, and Paul, when we could go on and on saying that these women and men who pursued God actually came to have knowledge of a different reality. It was not mere religion. It wasn't religious rhetoric. It wasn't Christianity in the sense of a world religion. It wasn't adherence to a denomination or to a local church. It was a lived experience of the genuine reality of God that released them to a different kind of life in this bubble of God's completely competent love and generosity. So last thing, there was a, a man in the um, second century, sorry, third century, somewhere in the 200s. His name was Paternus. We don't know anything else about him other than that. But he wrote this little note to his young son, and I think it helps us as we think about cultivating generosity. So in this thing, this now become known as advice to a son. Paternus says, first of all, my child, think magnificently of God. Magnify his providence. Adore his power. Pray to him frequently and incessantly. Bear him always in your mind. Teach your thoughts to reverence him in every place, for there is no place where he is not. Therefore, my child, fear and worship and love God. First and last, Think magnificently of him. So as we come to this quiet time now, I want to give you a few moments this morning to just think the most magnificent thoughts you can about God, about his capability, of his power, his love, his generosity, and his will to do good to you and to the whole earth. Think your best magnificent thoughts about God.